please, to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, and you know that we've been kind of moving from passage to passage this summer. We've been doing it freestyle before we land on a book uh, at some point in the fall. So here we are, Matthew 12, and we're starting in verse 1. Matthew 12, verse 1, and this is God's word. At that time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Jesus, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Wow. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray one more time. Father, May the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been years since I put together an old school uh, puzzle, you know, like 3,000 pieces. Your, your grandma would get you a 3,000-piece puzzle set, and you're like, 3,000 pieces? Wow, I'll never do this in my whole life, you know? Um, but, you know, I could kind of see the charm of it. Maybe you're in a mountain cabin and you and the missus are uh, over a table and the kids are piled in and blah, 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 and you do the puzzle. And But you remember doing a puzzle sometime in your life? And you remember the feeling when you've had this collective effort and you've walked by the puzzle a number of times and you've worked on it. You got the edges, you filled in the sky and the buildings and whatever. And you get to that last thing where you take the last puzzle piece and you slip it in. You know that feeling? It almost has a sound where you go... It's just got that little kind of satisfying, boom. And once you do that, the goal has been reached, the collective has been accomplished, and the picture is seen in its entirety, right? Well, I don't think it's too simplistic to say that uh, the message of the entire Bible is a lot like that. Um, The uh, assertion of the Savior, this Jesus, is basically saying, I'm it. You know what you've been looking for? You know, the, the, the sense that things are incomplete, the sense that the song is not yet finished, the sense that there's unrest and things haven't been quite put aright. 
Jesus is basically saying, and the message of this book is basically saying, that Jesus is that puzzle piece that goes and sets all things right. And so if you want to know uh, what the big idea is here today, I, I would say it's this. Jesus is everything everyone's been waiting for in every way. He's the one. And that's what's happening here in our story today. So let's go to the first point, which is this. Why the burden is light. Now, before I cite our passage here today, I want to direct you to a verse that's probably very familiar to you and and comforting, comforting to many a Christian heart. And it's the one that precedes our passage. So look at the the verse right beforehand. It says this in verse, uh, verse 30 of chapter 11. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now listen, even if somebody doesn't understand quite what that is, and even if somebody's not a Christian, somebody looks at this Jesus and goes, I don't know, these people, I think they're all nuts. They believe in this guy from 2,000 years ago. Even if you're one of those people who's kind of skeptical about it all and thinks that we're all nuts, the idea that a yoke can be easy and a burden can be light is at least a very spiritually soothing concept, isn't it? Well, it's not without reason. I mean, if it really is true... Um, then it's really good news, but there's got to be a basis for it, okay? So let's back up just a little bit more and look at verse 27 of that same chapter. Chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me, right? So by the Father, all things have been handed over to me. Then he says in verse 28, come to me. Remember, all things have been handed over to me, so come to me. All who are weary, who labor, who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now that's important to read because the chapter 12 is both chronologically in order and theologically in order. Okay, it's the same day, it's the same scene, it's in the probably in, in Capernaum. But it's, it's in chronological order, but it's in theological order too. Matthew is writing this, um, to a primarily Jewish readership, a Jewish first readership. In other words, um, when he writes this down, he's like, I know the first people who are going to read this are going to be the Jewish mind. So he's writing with a Jewish perspective. All right. So one of the keys of understanding this passage, um, is that the person at the center of the narrative is Jesus. The theme from, hey, uh, everything's been handed over to me, come to me, I'll give you rest, I know you're weary, take my yoke upon you, it's going to be easy, my burden's light, that theme continues into chapter 12. Uh, And so the the, the key to understanding this is that the person at the center of the narrative is Jesus, and he doesn't give you rest, period, he gives you rest from something. And that's being written to the Jewish mind. So that said, let's look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 12. It says, at that time, see, the story continues, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. The disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck ears of corn and to eat. Now, uh, some of your translation may, translations may say uh, heads of grain or heads of wheat or ears of grain or whatever. It, it's some kind of field grain. 
The point is that they were hungry. The disciples were hungry. And you know, there's a parallel passage to this in Mark chapter 2, which we did several years ago. In Mark 2, um, it, uh, it adds something. It says about David, when it says David and his men, they go into the temple and they eat the bread of the presence. We'll talk about that in a second. But it says that they were, David was in need and was hungry. So there's this need, okay? It's not superfluous. It's a, it's a situation that needs attention. There's hunger. There's need. He's with his men. David's on the run from Saul. He might be in dire need of food and, and strength and sustenance and so on. So before we, before we go on, it says, you know, in verse two, the Pharisees saw it. They say, hey, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. They're breaking the law. Let's make something very clear. Um, Leviticus 23 says this, um, when you reap the harvest of your land, landowner, farmer guy, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings, the stuff that's left over, that's laying on the ground, the stuff that fell after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Okay, so every Israelite knew that if they farmed, that once they harvested, they wouldn't harvest all the way to the edge. They'd leave the, they'd leave the outlying areas and they would leave whatever fell in their field and a sojourner or someone who's poor could always have food in the land. That's built right into their law. Every Jew knew that. They also knew this, Deuteronomy 23, 25. If you go into your neighbor's standing corn, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to it. All right, so it's on the other side too. So let's say I'm poor and I need some food. I'm not gonna borrow a John Deere tractor and go in there and scoop up all the edges and take it all and sell it in the marketplace. That's against the law. What is allowed is that I can go into the field and pick up grain or an ear of corn or something that's laying on the ground or on the outskirts and I can find food for myself and my family, right? So when it says here, the Pharisees are going, look, your disciples are breaking the law. That's not the law they're breaking. That's perfectly acceptable. They ain't stealing. And that's important because this whole scene, as you read it, has 0% fat. There is nothing superfluous in there. There's nothing that hasn't been put in there specifically by the Holy Spirit of God. And so uh, it all points toward one main thing, and that main thing is that Jesus is everything everyone's been waiting for in every way. And uh, the Pharisees know exactly what Jesus is saying. They know he is saying uh, it's a matter of divinity when it comes to me, Jesus. We'll explore that more in a second. Now, verse two, the Pharisees see it. They say, hey, look, your disciples are uh, doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And uh, by uh, implication, they're charging their leader too. They're basically saying, hey, the guys, your disciples are following around and you, you're sanctioning this. They're doing something unlawful. Well, you wanna know uh, the conclusion of the whole thing first? Let, let, let's, let's, let me take you to where the whole thing is pointing. The whole thing is pointing to something that is said in verse eight, if you look at it. In verse eight, it says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. That is nothing less than Jesus' claim to divinity. He's not saying I'm kind of an important guy and I rose to power. He's saying, I am divine. I am God. And the net gets thrown farther out than that too, scooping up the fulfillment of everything uh, that was expected from this Savior. Jesus is going, you know how uh, the Old Testament points somewhere? And you know how everybody's waiting and they're expecting? He's saying, I'm it. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And so instead of Jesus answering 
accusations with a, well, uh, let me tell you this and let me tell you this. He turns it around and he uses a rather accusatory question. In fact, a, a few of them. He uses an, 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 an accusatory question. He says in verse 3, have you not read religious leaders who have a good education and you're Pharisees and you're super proud of all your knowledge of the scriptures? Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Now, this, this bread that he's talking about, you ever been to a... a fancy, funky restaurant, and when you walk into the fancy, funky, funky, what did I say, funky restaurant, we'll edit that out, Uh, uh, there's a display case, and in that display case, there's all kinds of fancy meat, and uh, there's asparagus, and all these things on ice, and fresh fish, you ever seen that, you walk into a funky restaurant, and, and it's all laid out there for you, and basically, that display case, it's pristine, it's gorgeous, And uh, as you're waiting for the host or hostess to seat you, you're looking at it going, oh, (laughs) that's a representative sample of uh, what this whole experience is going to be like. It's all laid out there for me. It's a representative sample. Well, basically, that's what this bread was in the tabernacle. It was a representation of what was going on in that place. Back in the tabernacle, in the wilderness wanderings, the bread of the presence, they would take 12 loaves of bread and they put it in in the tabernacle. And uh, how many tribes of Israel were there? Twelve. Do you get it? Twelve loaves of bread in the tabernacle, and it represented not only fellowship between Israel and God in the house of God, in the tabernacle, fellowship, all right? But it was also no small thing that it was bread. You know, just a few chapters earlier, uh, Jesus prays and teaches us to pray in chapter 6. He says, uh, you know, pray, give us this day our daily bread. You were reminded that God provides for his people. A manna fell in the desert. Um, so it's, it's a significant thing. And what would happen is every Sabbath, the priests in the temple would change the bread out. They put new 12, 12 new loaves and the priests would eat the other ones. They could eat the other ones, but only the priests. All right. So the scene is, this is from first Samuel where David's being chased by Paul, by Saul. And uh, he, he runs for his life. He runs into the temple and the priest there, Ahimelech, says, oh, you guys are hungry. There's this need. You, David, your men, uh, here's the bread of the presence. Eat this. Now that scene, there's, that, that scene is not criticized by the Bible. It's sanctioned by the Bible. And it's sanctioned by the Lord Jesus too. And that's what's happening in this scene. And he's basically saying, hey, Pharisees, all right, you, you, want, you think this is unlawful? Well, ding-dongs, let me give you a little, uh, let me ask you a question. You remember when that thing happened with David and Ahimelech uh, gave him the, the bread and it was unlawful technically, but it was the right thing to do. It, was, it wasn't condemned by the scriptures you love. You remember that? Okay. Uh, let's look at another one, Jesus says. Uh, look at verse five. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath by working on the Sabbath and are guiltless? Guess what that means? I can have a job at a church and work right now. That's what that means. It's okay for the clergy to work. In fact, it's okay for the Christian to do good on the Sabbath, to serve God on the Sabbath, to dedicate the day to him, to consecrate it to him, but to serve him. It's good and lawful uh, to do those things on the Sabbath. It's okay that those who are called by God to serve, serve. And that's what Jesus is saying. Do you not know that? Have you not read that? Do you not understand that? 
Now, here's an application for you. Um, What these two examples by Jesus have in common is the accusatory undercurrent, of course. He says, you know, have you not read in verse 3? Verse 5, have you not read? But, you know, um, I don't think it's a stretch to, to, to augment that understanding a little bit. For instance, when he says in verse 3, have you not read? He basically is talking about a story from 1 Samuel. So he's, he's basically saying, I think, have you not read, you know, the major prophets of which Samuel is one? Don't you know that whole genre of the scriptures? And then he says in verse 5, have you not read... Um, about the priests and the Sabbath and the, 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 the bread and all that stuff. And, and uh, basically he's, excuse me, the, 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 uh, the priest in the temple, uh, working in the temple. He's basically saying, hey, uh, have you not heard of the Torah? I mean, you got the major prophets, you got the Torah. Oh, yeah, there's another one too. He says in verse 7, if you had, not, uh, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not condemn the guiltless. That's from Hosea. So he's basically saying, uh, by the way, you know the minor prophets? He's going, Pharisees, if you're going to bring the game, let's talk about the whole of the word of God that you know. Haven't you read any of it? Don't you know what it's all pointing to? I mean, the accusation by Jesus is magnificent. It's, it's giants. He's saying with great force, I think, that if they were really spiritually discerning, they would see Jesus for who he is. He says in verse 6, I tell you, Something greater than the temple is here. Well, that's a big statement, man. Greater than the temple? Greater than the place where God manifests his mysterious presence? You're kidding. Jesus, you're saying that you're divine. You're saying that you're above the temple. Um, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Hot dog. There you go, Jesus. You did it. He's saying, Pharisees, if you had understood the scriptures and that to which they point, me, you wouldn't be condemning this activity right now. Now, Christians, or anyone, really, but but let's talk about Christians. Anytime I hear a Christian default to, well, they're just stupid. Or you see this too. This is, I bet you this is something you've all said. I've said it too where someone's in the hospital or they're going through a horrible time, it's exceedingly hard, and you just go, how do non-Christians do it? I just can't believe they do it when all this is, I get that. And I, I know, it's, it, it grieves my heart too. You go, man, I, there's a real part of you that goes, man, oh God, I'm so glad you've saved me that I have this great hope. How do non-Christians do it? I know, I know. But when it's, how do non-Christians do it? They're just stupid. We get it and they don't get it. Why can't they just get it? We get it. Anytime you cop that attitude, that's not, <laughs> that's not how a Christian person is to think. The gospel uh, is an amazing one. It's a revealed one. The Bible calls it a mystery. The Bible joys to call it a mystery, a mystery that's been revealed. And ladies and gentlemen, the mystery of the gospel is a very simple one. Jesus says here, I'm above the function of the temple. I'm above the temple itself. Jesus says here, I'm the authoritative, interpretive voice of God's law. He's saying, I'm God, 
I'm divine. I'm the one who was sent. I'm everything everyone's been waiting for in every way. I have authority. And when you come to me, you come down there. You don't come to me going, hey, look at all the stuff I did. Oh, I'm just trying to be my best I can possibly be. It's not some kind of Boy Scout theology. Christ the Lord says, come. And when he says come, he means come with nothing but your shame. Come with no attitude except please have mercy on me. That's the gospel message. What Jesus did on the cross was take the punishment for the sinner. He died in the sinner's place so that God would look at the sinner and see and receive the beauty and excellence and purity of his own son. That's a gift, friends. All right, next point, why the authority is valid. Jesus makes pretty big claims here. Um, big claims to people who understand the claims. They're, they're not confused about what he's saying. So it goes on. The story continues. Same theme, same day, Capernaum, same scene. He went on from there, entered a synagogue. Uh, entered their synagogue, by the way. And a man was there with a withered hand. Now, that withered word, by the way, is, um, is, uh, it, it, it's not just a, a boo-boo. Uh, it's withered. And, um, it, it's, uh, you ever driven down Germantown Parkway looking for firewood and you see all those guys with firewood? It's somewhere near the Lowe's on Germantown Parkway. Every year there's a, a, a plywood sign with a spray, with, it's spray painted on there. And it says, cracks me up. It says, season wood. Like, it's the season for wood. You do know that it's seasoned wood. It's not wood season. It's seasoned wood. And it's seasoned wood. That means they've chopped down the wood. They've chopped it up into firewood pieces. They've stored it outside for no less than a year, during which time it dries out. And even the sap, even the lifeblood of the tree is wicked up. Because that way, when you don't put it, when you put it in your fireplace, it's not like explosions going on. It's seasoned wood. It's completely dried out and lifeless. And that's the idea of this guy's withered hand. It's not a boo-boo. He's got a completely dead, unworkable, unworkable, notable uh, uh, problem. Uh, and so uh, Jesus goes in there and he sees a man with a withered hand and um, they ask him a question. They say, hey, um, is it lawful? They're trying to trick him. They say, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. Basically, they're trying to trick him into working on the Sabbath and violating the Sabbath. And... Um, Jesus is no dummy, and he says in verse 11, uh, another question. <clears throat> Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now listen, um, there were allowances for life-threatening situations in God's law. What makes this thing so potent is what Jesus says. When he says, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, you know what he's doing? He is authoritatively interpreting God's law. They know what he's doing too. He's saying, I have the right and the authority to tell you the original intent of God's law. That is that is wild, ladies and gentlemen. He's blatantly saying what the law means. That is, that, is the, that is like me saying, hey, ladies and gentlemen, I have an announcement. 
Hold on, get CNN on the phone. I, I'd, like, I'd like my craziness to be broadcast to the whole world. And I would like to say that I, Jim Umloff, have a greater authority than the United States Supreme Court. That's my claim. Would that be a big claim? You're one guy and you're saying you're above the Supreme Court of the United States and her decisions and her interpretation of the Constitution. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, Pharisees, religious leaders, you know how for mm, thousands of years you've scoured these scriptures and it's all pointed to something. Jesus goes, I'm it. I'm him. I'm the one you're waiting for. And I'm above all these things. I have the authority and the ability to interpret even God's law. I'm above the temple. I'm above the law. That's unbelievable, ladies and gentlemen. Now, if only... There was some kind of proof that could back up such a giant claim. I mean, it's one thing to make a claim, but then to, to kind of prove that that's true, wouldn't that be, uh, would have been good for the story. Oh, wait a minute. Verse 13, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and was restored healthy like the other. There's your authority. Power over the created order. Got a dead, withered hand, no life in it. I'll take that seasoned hand, and I'll fix it. And that proves his authority. You know, Jesus um, overtly portrays himself as a divine figure. Here's an application for you. He overtly portrays himself as a divine figure, not just a swell guy, not just a sweetie pie, uh, kindly teacher. Um, He portrays himself as an authority with all the authority. He has the ability to uh, rescue. He has the power to do what he says. All these things are in this passage. And easily tying together this whole account, you can see that the claim is that God is the one who defines the path to himself. Not a man, not a woman, not a sincere person. God's not interested in the pomp of this world. He's not interested in multicolored costumes that clergymen wear or Hare Krishna people wear at the airport. He's not interested in all the pomp. He's not, he doesn't care about pointy hats and uh, cathedrals and all that kind of gorgeous stuff. He's not bent toward tolerance. He's not into a bunch of cheese ball sincerity. That's not what God is all about. God defines how he is approached. And Jesus, per the scriptures, is the one and only way by which a sinner can be received by this God and made clean. And my gospel plea to you is simply believe that. He's the only way. Our last point. Why the hope is real. Uh, Verses 15 and 16. uh, Let's look at it. It says, Jesus, aware of this. Oh, by the way, yeah, verse 14. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how they could destroy him. (laughs) They don't like like his claims. They're not confused at all, by the way. He made claims. They're not like, "Mm, I wonder what he meant by that. They're like, kill him. They get it. Uh, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him. He healed them all and ordered them not to make him known because his time had not yet come. Now, it was perfectly reasonable for Jesus to move on. Uh, as uh, indicated on many occasions, his time had not yet come. He knew that. He moved on. He continued to heal, which validated his claims and so on. But um, Matthew draws an even deeper connection. It's gripping. We're almost done. But it's a direct quote from Isaiah 42. In verse 16 and following, it's saying this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, and it's applied to Jesus. Behold, 
My servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I'll put my spirit with a capital S upon him. He'll proclaim justice of the Gentiles. He'll not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed, he will not break. A smoldering wick, he will not quench till he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Basically, it's saying that all of that is applied to the person of Jesus. Matthew is making this clear to the Jewish reader and to anyone, any onlooker, a Pharisee. Um, this is all pointing toward Jesus, and it's all pretty much saying the same thing as we close it up here. The Lord Jesus was greater than the temple, abrogating the functions of the temple, fulfilling all to which it pointed. He's the last and final king. He's the last and final prophet. He's the last and final sacrifice. He's he's the one. He's the savior. He was also greater than the law, knowing its original intent and having the right to interpret it. Greater than the temple, greater than the law. And in case there was a question as to whether or not he was exactly who he said he was, he proves his authority, his creative authority over life on earth. Amazing. Well, you remember the... um, the thump of the puzzle piece we talked about at the beginning. Um, the last puzzle piece makes the picture clear. And uh, I would say this to you, person with a, a gaping hole in your heart. Your heart may be blown open. And you may be searching for real answers to real questions in a really hard world. Uh, I can tell you that Jesus is what you've been waiting for. He's what you've been waiting for. He is the puzzle piece that goes, he is the one who will set all things right for your soul. He is the one who will give you his righteousness. Uh, He is the one who will give you rest. Uh, His burden is light. Receive the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so in awe of this gospel and in awe of the Savior of it and, and, and mindful of how, how needy we were and are of grace. If, if those who knew the Old Testament better than anybody else could not see the Savior standing in front of them, uh, is there any hope for anyone? We thank you that you have uh, illumined truth. We praise you, Lord, that you have uh, made a people for yourself and made a way unto yourself, that you have a plan of salvation, and that you, O oh God, execute that plan in your kindness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Thanks, you guys.